And this comic book is a love story, a boy and girl in love. They get married, and after an offensively lurid description illustrated, of course, of the couple's wedding night, the book shows how the bride murders her husband by chopping his head off with an axe. Hello again, friends and fans of Freaky, Frightening, and Fantastic Funnies. Welcome to Four Color Fear, the podcast dissecting and inspecting horror comics. Bob here, your friendly neighborhood curator, and this is episode nine. Wow, how about that? One more and we'll be in double digits. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. This time out, we're going to crack open The Hand of Fate, number 20, published by Ace Magazines in 1953. Ace Magazines was a comic book and pulp magazine imprint uh, falling under the umbrella of a publishing company run by a husband and wife team, Aaron and Rose Wynn. And the Wins had been publishing pulp fiction under various names since 1928 and published comics from 1940 until the end of 1956. And their books fell into the typical genres of the day. We had superhero and romance, crime, and of course horror. Their notable horror comics would be Baffling Mysteries, Web of Mystery, and Hand of Fate, which is the book we're going to be looking at today. A notable thing about Ace Magazines is that a few of their stories were used as examples of violent and gruesome imagery in the uh, congressional inquiries into the influence of comic books on juvenile delinquency, which of course we know led to the Comics Code Authority. So uh, we'll be taking a look at The Hand of Fate. Now The Hand of Fate is a hosted horror anthology comic, and it's hosted by Fate. And uh, this character has a ghostly, pale look to him. He's dressed in a hooded robe, uh, not unlike Destiny from DC. If you remember back to episode 3, we looked at DC's Secrets of Haunted House number 27, and that issue was hosted by Destiny. And, you know, he walked around with this cosmic log, and sometimes it was referred to as the Book of Fate. Well, the character Fate in The Hand of Fate, he carries around this Book of Fate also, and... What makes him different from Destiny is that not only does he narrate the stories, but on occasion he will actually interact with the characters. Uh, But you can definitely see that the DC character Destiny was influenced by this character. They look very similar. So we'll take a look at The Hand of Fate number 20 when we come back, so stick around. Hello, may I come in? I am Chef Boyardi. Perhaps you have seen my picture on Chef Boyardi products at two grocers. Today, I want to tell you about a wonderful dinner for three. A dinner that only cost about 15 cents a serving. It's my own Chef Boyari spaghetti dinner with meat sauce or mushroom sauce. It all comes in one carton. A full half pound of tender, quick cooking spaghetti, 10 full ounces of rich, tasty sauce, and to top it off, a whole can of zippy grated cheese. A wonderful food. 
So ask your grocer for Chef Boyari's spaghetti dinner with meat or mushroom sauce, won't you? And look for other Chef Boyari's products. They're also delicious, they're also nourishing, and they help keep the cost of your meals down. Chef Boyardi's products are at Best Grocer. Ask for Chef Boyardi's spaghetti dinner. Only about 15 cents a serving. Take a picture of this. It's the late summer or early fall in 1953. And Eartha Kitt's playing on the radio. You're in your bedroom and you're paging through your latest issue of The Hand of Fate. And your mother calls saying it's time for dinner. So you close the book and hide it under your mattress and head downstairs. Where, if you were lucky enough to have a TV in 1953, you may have seen this commercial. So you head to the dining room or the kitchen, or wherever it is that your family partakes, and you see for dinner is, of course, Chef Boyardee's spaghetti. Do you know he was a real guy? You know, unlike Betty Crocker, who was a fictitious creation, Chef Boyardee was a real guy. His name was Ettore Boyardi, and he emigrated to the United States from Italy when he was 16 years old, uh, eventually worked his way up to being head chef at the Plaza Hotel in New York, opened his first restaurant in Cleveland in 1923. His spaghetti sauce was so popular, he started selling it to patrons, and the rest is history. He was better known by his uh, angelicized name, which was Hector Boyardi. Okay, the hand of fate... The Hand of Fate ran for 19 issues from December 1951 to November 1954. We're going to be looking at number 20. And The Hand of Fate number 20 has a cover date of October 1953 and a cover price of 10 cents. And the cover layout is in the typical comics cover layout of the time. We have the upper third and a solid field. This time it's yellow. The Hand of Fate is written in a large, bold font. And the lower two-thirds is the artwork, and the artwork is done by Jim McLaughlin, who did a lot of work for Atlas in the 50s, which of course would eventually evolve into Marvel Comics. And uh, this is a very well-drawn and composed cover, which of course, as is often the case, has absolutely nothing to do with any of the stories in the book. But it shows a man lying on his living room floor, and it appears that he has been trampled by a large elephant. There are large elephant prints on the floor and over his body. And there is a small jeweled figurine of an elephant on the floor next to him. And we see his wife approaching and she says, Elephant prints, but how? How could a cursed jeweled elephant have come to life? And that's our cover. Like I said, very well drawn and composed, uh, but it doesn't have anything to do with any of the stories. Okay, so The Hand of Fate number 20 has 36 pages with four comic stories and one text story, but we also get these uh, single-page Hand of Fate mysteries. They're numbered things that uh, The Hand of Fate used to put in their books. Uh, They are tales of fiction, but presented in a single-page short style, very similar to like what you'd see from like a Ripley's Believe It or Not. Okay, our first story is called Death Was the Bridegroom where a beautiful woman marries rich men and poisons them, so fate decrees her end and death claims her body. Then we get Hand of Fate Mystery number 25. That's followed by The Phantom Gladiator, where 
a newlywed couple during a tour of Europe discover in Pompeii that they are incarnations of a gladiator and a Roman noblewoman and have to fulfill deadly vows that they made 2,000 years ago. Then we have Hand of Fate Mystery number 26. That's followed by Long Shall the Undead Whale. What a great title that is. Where we get a ghoulish history lesson that after the assassination of King Edward II in 1327, his wife Isabella and her lover Roger Mortimer are doomed to roam the earth as a ghoul and a female werewolf. That sounds pretty interesting. Then we get our text story, which is called The Macabre Find of Dr. Benton. And closing out the book is Dynasty of Disaster, where an Algerian family who rules the land is cursed by a dying slave. So there's a brief synopsis of our stories in The Hand of Fate number 20. We'll be right back to cover our featured story, so stick around. Richard Carlson. If I look somewhat older and more drawn than I have in my recent pictures, it's because of the harrowing experiences I've been having here in The Maze. The Maze is the first picture in three dimension that delves into the weird and terrifying world of the supernatural. If you're familiar with the exciting effects that can be achieved with 3D, you can imagine what happens when something from the great beyond reaches right out of the screen to clutch at you. Oh, and one more thing. After you've seen the maze, please don't reveal to your friends the secret of its story or its startling climax. Because you see, we think the maze will amaze you. The Maze was one of two 3D horror films released in 1953. The other, of course, being the incredible House of Wax with the great Vincent Price. Uh, there was a version of House of Wax available on Roku that you could watch with the old uh, red and blue 3D glasses. Uh, it worked a bit. It mostly gave me a headache. I can't vouch for its existence anymore because uh, I haven't used the Roku in a while. 3D films are pretty commonplace nowadays. I just saw one the other day with the grandchildren. Uh, Wonder Park. Uh, back in my formative years, it was pretty much dead. Uh, the only 3D things you would see is possibly a 3D poster every now and then. And do you remember those 3D baseball cards that were in, like, Kellogg cereal? Yeah. I did finally see a 3D film in 1981. It was a uh, spaghetti western film called Coming At Ya. Uh, I don't remember much about it other than the fact it was just full of 3D gimmicks from start to finish. But it did set off a... Uh, mini craze in the early 80s of 3D films. Uh, you may remember Friday the 13th 3D. That was another one I saw and Jaws 3D. Uh, that one I passed on. Okay, back to the topic at hand. Our featured story for The Hand of Fate number 20 is Long Shall the Undead Whale. I had a hard time resisting that title. And I have a few credits for that. We got Pencils and Inks by Louis Zansky. Now, Louis Zansky would probably be best known for his early work, which would be in the old Classics Illustrated, which was published by Gilberton. And uh, he did the artwork for classics such as Moby Dick, Robin Hood, Don Quixote, 
Huck Finn and several others. He would then move on to Ace Magazines and do several titles there, one of them, of course, being The Hand of Fate. Uh, the other credit we have is Letters by Leroy Lettering. Now, Leroy Lettering is not a person. And, you know, I should have discussed this before because we have covered a few EC books and this was used all the time in EC. It's a lettering system that's mostly used in technical writing or blueprints. EC used it uh, regularly. It was always credited to Jim Roten for EC. But it's basically a stenciling system. However, it is still manually operated by an artist, uh, and it is a pen and ink application. So it's not a typeset machine. If you look at any of the old um, EC books, you'll see that very technical, cold, perfect lettering. That's what Leroy Lettering is, and that's being used here. We don't have any credit for who actually did it, but uh, Leroy Lettering is being used, and it's very clear to see that it was a stencil set. Okay, Long Shall the Undead Whale is based on historical facts, but we won't really get into that. Uh, just know that Edward II, Roger de Mortimer, and Isabella of France were all real people. They are all historical people. However, basically, uh, whoever wrote this story took history and just ran with it. Now, granted, there is some controversy behind the death of Edward II. The only thing we know for certain is that he did die at Berkeley Castle near Gloucester in 1327. So our story opens up. Now, Fate is not visible in this story. We're, we can assume that he's narrating it, but we don't see him appear throughout this story. <clears throat> but we get this introduction. On the night of September 22, 1327, at Berkeley Castle near Gloucester, England, Edward II was foully and treacherously murdered. His cries of agony heard at a considerable distance from the castle awoke many of the terrified townspeople who crouched praying in the darkness, not only for the soul that was departing, but for the terror they knew would soon visit them. So we see the castle and uh, we hear some screaming coming from it. Edward saying, have done with me, I can stand no more. Someone else saying, I was beginning to think the fool would never die. Days of every kind of torture we could devise, and he continues to live. And then we go inside the castle, and we see Roger de Mortimer and Isabella of France, who is Richard II's wife, torturing Richard II. And uh, Isabel says, well, there's still life in him. Perhaps we should give him some more of the pincers and chain. To which Roger replies, there cannot possibly be more than that dying groan. I mean, we get some final words from Edward II. You are wrong, Roger de Mortimer. With this my final breath, I leave a dying king's curse upon my wife, Isabella of France, and you, her lover. I have learned in my agony why my subjects have called my queen the she-wolf, that the centuries may not forget what you have done to me. Your evil forms will stalk the earth, spreading fear and horror until you destroy each other and go to your final punishment. This for you and your curses. And then Edward dies. So later we see Isabella and Roger talking in the dining hall. She says, so the people call me the she-wolf, eh? Now that I have complete power, they will not dare to even whisper against me. And Roger says, well, what do you care what they say? You are cruel, but you are also beautiful, and both your cruelty and your beauty hold me enthralled. We are quite the pair, aren't we, Roger? You are as evil and cruel yourself as you are handsome. So no one dared accuse Edward's wicked queen of his murder terror of this beautiful and vindictive woman and of Roger de Mortimer prevailed throughout England until suddenly the supporters of her son had him crowned king. So 
Edward II's son is crowned king. And uh, he says, I find my mother Isabella and Roger de Mortimer guilty of the murder of my father. To which Isabella says, no, what I did for was for you. He would not sign the paper of abdication, giving up the throne to you. It was Roger who insisted upon using force. And Roger then says, you lie. It was your idea to kill him. So right away, once the uh, crap hits the fan, they are uh, not so devoted to each other. So now Isabella says, I hope you die like a dog. And Roger replies, have you forgotten your husband's dying words? Whatever punishment awaits me awaits you too, you she-wolf. So the new king, Edward III, decrees, it is my command that my mother be banished and that she remain in seclusion until her death. It is my command that Roger de Mortimer be hanged at Tyburn like the lowest of cutthroats. So a few days later, the carriage that was carrying Isabella back to Berkeley Castle, which I guess was where she was going to be uh, placed in seclusion, rides by the gallows where Roger is now hanging. He says, haha, looks as though we are not going to share the same punishment after all, Roger. You are dead and I am living. And as Isabella's carriage drives off, the hangmen remove Roger from the gallows and they drag him to a pit of bodies. And uh, we're told it was indeed a fate worse than death. And I guess we see Satan. I'm going to assume this is Satan here. It's another strange depiction of Satan. You know, I mentioned earlier that episode three, we discussed uh, Secrets of Haunted House, published by DC. If you remember, there was a strange depiction of Satan in the featured story for that issue. Uh, we got another strange one here. It's basically a skull with red horns sticking out of it. I mean, it's kind of frightening looking, but just not your typical depiction of Lucifer or Satan. But anyway, he tells Roger, you are one of the living dead now. Edward's dying curse made you one of the hordes of evil beings who serve me on earth until the curse is fulfilled, and I take you to your eternal torture below. The spell that holds you will be removed at midnight, and by the time you dig your way out of the pit of the dead, you will begin your existence as a ghoul. So, as I said, he's thrown into uh, this pit of bodies, and uh, the clock strikes midnight, and he rises and he realizes he's a ghoul. I feel myself changing. I know the foul creature I will become, but I am helpless. The evil I once committed of my own free will I must do now because I cannot help myself. A terrible power beyond my control works within me. So we have a pretty interesting look for him. I mean, he's kind of, you know, slouching around, but he still has the uh, hangman's noose around his neck. It's a pretty interesting look. So he actually, we find out he actually finally emerged from the pit the next night, and uh, he says, now I shall again walk the earth. Are you waiting for me, Isabella? We shared in the crime, and we shared in the curse. You cannot escape. So Roger's seen walking through the streets of Gloucester and uh, frightening all the people, and they say, you know, what horrible thing comes nigh it cannot be of this world it is something human eyes have never before seen and in the days that followed the news of the strange creature that haunted the vicinity spread to the castle and Isabella overhears this and she says to one of her servants how dare you mention the name of Roger de Mortimer and what is this talk of a monster a strange creature that terrifies the populace tell me Tell me what this is all about. It is nothing, my lady, just some silly superstition. There are those who think they have seen a ghoul, one who is robbing the graves and feeding on the dead. So we got the classic definition of ghoul here. It is bad enough to be shut up here without being surrounded by imbeciles spreading stupid stories. Perhaps it would be well if I began beating sense into all of you. So Isabella starts to lay a beating on the servant. 
I guess this has been going on from time to time. She's been abusive to these servants, and they basically, uh, one of them basically sneaks up on her and hits her on the back of the head with a brick. And uh, they say, you've killed her. What shall we do? We must keep all our mouths shut. We'll cover the wound on her head with her hair, and we'll say she took ill in the night and died. So that's the story that uh, they give to the authorities, I guess, and also King Edward III. And we find out that the secret of what had happened at the castle was carefully kept, and even the young king thought she had died of a sudden illness. We see Roger uh, slumping through the village again, and he sees... uh, Isabella's uh, funeral procession going by. He says, it is Isabella. They they are bringing her to me. And within the heavy coffin, unable to move or to speak, Isabella was aware of all that was happening and of a strange transformation that seemed to be taking place within herself. And she says, I am not dead. I could not be dead and know everything that is happening, but they will bury me and I can do nothing to prevent it. I feel myself changing. If I could spring out of here, I would devour those fools who have done this to me. I would rip the flesh from their bones. And we see that she has turned into a she-wolf. So her coffin was placed in a nearby tomb, and Roger comes to visit. And he says, Hehe, I feed on the dead, Isabella. And when the craving comes, it must be satisfied. So I guess Roger has plans to uh, make a meal out of Isabella. But as he approaches her coffin and lifts the lid, she sits up. Ah, so they were right. A handsome Roger de Mortimer has come back from the dead to feed upon the dead. But you will not feed upon me, you monster. I'll tear you to pieces. Isabella, they called you a she-wolf, and such you have become. So they start having a tussle, and uh, she says, This cannot be true. I cannot have changed into this creature. This is something you have done to me. And he says, Isabella, remember, it is the curse of Edward that we should destroy each other. We may yet avert the dire ending of this curse. We must stay away from each other. Then we are safe. Since our base hungers are not the same, our paths need not cross. And Isabella agrees. So I guess uh, out of self-preservation, they decide to stay away from each other. And we find that the centuries passed, and in the vicinity of Gloucester and nearby Berkeley Castle, strange things happened. Uprooted graves, empty coffins, and a fearsome specter seen crouching in the shadow of the tombs. While springing from the Cotswolds, a bloodthirsty wolf could neither be trapped nor killed by those who hunted it. And now we take a quick jump into the future, about 600 years, and we're told it is now 1953. Although Isabella and Roger have managed to avoid each other... Their hatred has grown through the centuries, and we get a panel here, quite a gruesome one. Now remember, when I say gruesome, you have to look at it through 1953 eyes, you know. Their sensibilities were not so jaded and perverted like ours are. But we get this panel where we see this modern-day couple walking by a cemetery, and we, in the foreground of the panel, we see Roger, and he's having a feast on a corpse. He's got what looks like a shin bone in his hands, and he's uh, gnawing the meat off of it. It's uh, pretty gruesome and most likely our Poe for the episode. And he says, I will never be able to stop. I must go on forever. A creature of horror belonging nowhere. That she-wolf brought me to this end when she urged me to help her kill Edward. And the couple uh, run off away from this. And the man says, I can't believe it. I thought it was just a crazy myth, the ghoul of Gloucester. So they run away. And a few miles away from there, uh, we see Isabella as the she-wolf with a victim draped over her shoulders. And... uh, The authorities are taking shots at her with with rifles. And she says, they cannot kill me, but sometimes I wish they could. Isabella of France being hunted like a beast. 
If it had not been for Roger, I would have not have this misery, and it was Roger's ghoulish hands that opened my coffin when I might have rested there in peace. How much longer can I endure it? And we get a little uh, interlude from Satan, where he tells us, For over six centuries you have tried to escape your ultimate fate, Isabella and Roger. Now your existences have become unendurable. Your hatred of each other growing through the centuries will make you forget the even greater punishment awaiting you. It was an ending you could not escape. And so at last, Isabella and Roger went in search of each other. And we see that they find each other in a moonlit cemetery. And Roger says, a cursed she-wolf. I have become as I am because of you. No longer can I resist the urge to destroy you. And she replies, I will tear your rotted body apart and scatter it to the winds. And our closing narration says, It was a strange, fearful battle, but there could be but one end to that dreadful struggle. Destruction of each other. And when the next morning the crumbling skeletons were found, in his tomb Edward II rested in peace. His murderers had at last destroyed each other. The curse was fulfilled. And that's the end of our story. All in all, a uh, pretty interesting story. I like the, the historical background, even though they kind of, of course, you know, took historical fact and ran with it. It was an entertaining story. The artwork, Louis Zansky's artwork is great. Uh, and whoever did the coloring, it's a good use of the color palette. We get, you know, uh, natural use of colors with also some effect shadings of blues and greens used throughout on various panels. Uh, Well-drawn, uh like I mentioned before, we see the Leroy lettering, very cold block lettering style that you would see in all of the ECs. Uh, we get that here. I don't know if that's used in all of the issues of Hand of Fate. That's something I'll have to check out. But that was our featured story. And uh, definitely our Poe for the episode is going to be the one where Roger's feasting on the corpse at the grave. That's just a, that's just a ghastly sight. So that was our featured story, Long Shall the Undead Wail. I love that title. Uh, for next episode, we are going to forego the random comic generator. It is March when I'm recording this. Actually, it's, <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, it's March 20th, and uh, that's the birthday of Frederick Wortham. So, in honor of that, we are going to select a book that is one of the books that was cited by Dr. Wortham in Seduction of the Innocent. And that title is Chamber of Chills, number 7, published by Harvey in 1952. Yes, that's right, Harvey. The same people that brought you Richie Rich and Casper the Friendly Ghost also had some pretty graphic pre-code horror comics in the 50s. So we're going to take a look at one of those issues, Chamber of Chills, number 7, next time out. So that's going to do it for this episode. I'd like to thank you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with me, leave a comment or suggestion, or just say hi, you can do that at fourcolorfear at gmail.com. You can also visit the blog, fourcolorfear.blogspot.com. There's an RSS feed that you can subscribe to there. You can find the podcast at all the normal places, uh, specifically iTunes, Stitcher. Uh, we're also available on TuneIn Radio and directly from the blog. And we also have a Facebook group. Just search for Four Color Fear on Facebook. And remember, Four Color Fear is always spelled the number four, C-O-L-O-R-F-E-A-R. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you again soon. Bye-bye.
Bye-bye.